You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. In the late 1950s, when Fidel Castro was taking his revolution out of the mountains toward the ultimate victory of Havana, the world watched what was believed to be a popular uprising of the people. There is not communism or Marxism in our ideas. Our political philosophy is representative democracy and social justice in a well-planned economy. But the revolution provided a new base for the KGB and the communist intelligence networks. Ladislav Bittman was a deputy director with so Czech intelligence. A few years after the revolution, the Czechs helped to build up the, the Cuban intelligence service. And then, I think in the early 1960s, the Soviets took over completely when Cuba was uh, really in, in the hands of the Soviet bloc, the Soviet Union. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. Feel. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. Every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. And here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, yes we, we can. can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. Here at the Cuban Mission to the United Nations in New York City, where 98 Cuban nationals work, at least half are members of the DGI, 
the Cuban intelligence service. This man is Nestor Garcia. Until the summer of 1980, he was officially listed as the first secretary to the Cuban mission. But in reality, he was chief of station for Cuban intelligence in New York City. In Moscow, the direct responsibility for running Cuban intelligence is assigned to Department 11 of the KGB, the same department that controls the Czechs, Poles, and other European communist intelligence agencies. Since the late 1960s, Soviet KGB officers living in Havana have directly run the operation of Cuban intelligence. As a result of two years' research, the Connections team has been able to ascertain these startling facts. Cuban intelligence was taken over by the Soviets in 1969. At that time, it became and has remained totally financed and controlled by the KGB. Now living in hiding, this man is the highest-ranking Cuban officer to defect to the United States. This is the first known television interview that a DGI officer has given. In uh, Moscow, I was trained in uh, recruiting of agents, in infiltrating uh, the CIA, in counterintelligence. Was all your training directed at the United States, all your training in Moscow directed at the United States? Even if the work dealt with uh, operations in Italy, France, England, Canada, it was ultimately directed against the United States. In the case of a plan of sabotage against an American embassy, the physical layout of the plant had to be known. Was there any other installations than embassies that were looked at for sabotage? All the big uh, American companies. Since the late 1960s, General Semenov of the KGB has controlled the DGI from Havana for the Soviets. General Semenov, the Soviet chief, would be the one who would give the order. So the Russians controlled Cuban intelligence, actually controlled? Totally and absolutely. The second most important base of Cuban intelligence in North America is the Cuban consulate in Montreal. From here and other Cuban diplomatic missions, the DGI conducts intelligence and espionage operations through a spy network designed to increase the KGB's penetration of North American life. You saw the files of these people in Havana, correct? Yes, I know many. Were they working, for instance, trying to get defense secrets from America? This former DGI officer was shown the official list of the 12 Cubans stationed in Washington at the Cuban interest section. How many on that list do you know as being in intelligence? Four. There are four on that list. Certainly. Certainly. Have you ever heard of a Mr. 
Ricardo Escartin? Si, oficial de inteligencia. He's an intelligence officer. How about Mr. Juan Carbonell? Juan Carbonell is another official intelligence. Juan Carbonell is another intelligence officer who was in uh, Jamaica. Jeju Arbalea? También. Uh, also. Mr. Martinez? Si, ese es otro oficial de inteligencia. Yes, this is another uh, officer of the uh, DGI. Six months after this interview, Ricardo Escartin was expelled from the U.S. for espionage activities. But the other DGI officers, Carbonell, Arbolea, and Martinez, are still operating in Washington. In the mid-1960s, the black ghettos of America erupted in flames and violence in an apparently spontaneous protest. The riots did not need instigation by outside elements, yet once the conditions were ripe, revolutionaries of the left moved in funded and supported by the Cuban DGI. One such revolutionary was Philip Luce. What was the nature of your meeting with Fidel Castro? Uh, our nature, first of all, was we met a number of times. But our first meeting dealt with uh, what the group would do in Cuba. Uh, secondly, was uh, what we could do in the United States once we returned, and third of all, uh, we received uh, uh, over $20,000 to bring back to the United States. Uh, the next year, we were engaged in uh, tremendous uh, 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 riots in New York City, uh, which then spread to uh, Cleveland, uh, to Los Angeles, to other areas. Agitation at juncture was vital, uh, not only to our cause, but to the cause of Cubans. We trained people in the use of weapons, we also trained people on how to stand on top of their tenement buildings and throw down garbage cans filled with bricks. We also taught them how to make Molotov cocktails. As a matter of fact, the Cubans <coughs> at that time said to us, your revolution is your own revolution. But while we were in Cuba, they gave us money to bring back to the United States to be utilized uh, in terrorist activities. They also invited us to the embassy, wherein they gave us money to send young Americans to Cuba who were later trained in terrorist activities. We went to the Cuban embassy uh, on a number of occasions uh, to get funding. In the 1960s, Bernadine Dorn was one of the leaders of the violent radical group known as the Weathermen. On December 3rd, 1980, in Chicago, Bernadine Dorn surrendered after 10 years in hiding. With her was another Weatherman, Bill Ayers, with whom she had been living. They held a press conference and stated their continued commitment to radical change. Resistance by every means necessary is happening and will continue to happen within the United States as well as around the world. And I remain committed to the struggle ahead. The man with Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, was one of the key members of the Weathermen during the 1960s. A man who knew Ayers well during those years was Larry Grathwall, a former member of the Weather Underground, which had developed close ties with the Cubans. Well, 
when, when the Cubans viewed the, the revolutionary struggle in the United States, they recognized the fact that the, that the left as it existed in 69 and 70 was not capable of, of overthrowing the government by itself. Consequently, they, they had hoped that the, that the group itself would be able to, to attack the system from within and provide assistance to the international movement, the international communist revolution. As a weatherman, if I became cut off from the main body of the, of the organization, the Weather Underground organization, I could make contact or reestablish contact by going to the Cuban embassy in Mexico or Canada and asking to, as an example, I wanted to get in touch with Bernadine Delgado. That was the code word, Delgado. And I would tell them that I'm Larry Delgado and I can be reached at such and such a phone number or at such and such an address. And the Cubans would make the connection and put me back in contact with the How do you know this? I don't how do you know. How do you know this information? Oh, Bill Ayers gave me those instructions in, it was either February or March of 1970 in Detroit. The Cuban DGI is organized into seven departments and subdivided into geographic sections, the largest one being the United States section. It controls North American operations, including the UN, diplomatic posts, and radical groups. During the 1970s, hundreds of young Americans circumvented U.S. travel regulations to go to Cuba to harvest sugarcane and experience the Cuban Revolution firsthand. As a cover for the recruitment of the weathermen, the DGI organized the Venceremos Brigades. The organizers, tour guides, and hosts were officers of the DGI who used the occasion to train young American radicals. Cuban intelligence was well prepared for the Venceremos brigades when they arrived. Every time that uh, a Venceremos brigade contingent arrived in Cuba, all the uh, operational of the um, DGI had to drop what they were doing and go to work on the Venceremos brigade. We had to investigate, collect background to see who could be recruited what information could be obtained. Do you know of young Americans who were recruited in the brigade to work for the Cuban intelligence who came back to America and were secretly working for the Cubans? Yes, and they are still working. Still working for yeah. the Cubans in America? Yes, definitely. The brigade was established with the sole purpose of providing a cover for the weathermen to get their people to Cuba for training. And that that's why it existed. As a matter of fact, when our people came back off the 1st Venceramus Brigade, and, and I think it was February of 1970, the criticism that the uh, Cubans had made about the Venceramus Brigade indicated that the majority of people being sent there, they felt were useless. They really weren't helping them harvest sugarcane. But that it was justified in the sense that here was a means to train and politicize weathermen contacts and weathermen. Cuba somehow had the ability to uh, bring out young people at that time, uh, the feeling of, of communism with a uh, mambo beat, or uh, somehow that uh, what was happening in Cuba was totally different 
from what was happening anyplace else in the world. This was the main reason of the interest showed by the Russians in trying to control the DGI, because the Cubans could work far more easily than the Soviets. Weren't the weather people aware that they were being used by the Soviets in some no. way? No, they, they viewed the Cubans as being the vanguard of the international communist revolution. Now, the vanguard essentially means that the Cubans are at the very tip of the spear. They're the leadership. Um, the Russians are being used by the Cubans. Now, this is the Weatherman's rationalization of this, this interaction between the Soviets and the Cubans. The Cubans said, you've got to become active. You've got to start doing things. And planning a national action to protest the beginning of the Chicago 8 trial and to commemorate the, the, the riots during the, the Democratic National Convention of 68 uh, and to protest the war in Vietnam is not action. Action requires that you confront the system violently. So when the weathermen got back from Cuba, they changed the national action to the days of rage. The days of rage in October 1969 was an attack on the city of Chicago and its police department. For four days, anti-war protesters, urged on by agitators of the weathermen, rioted in the streets, engaging in violent confrontations and pitched battles with the police. Quebec during the 1960s was rocked by terrorist bombings and confrontations between the police and French-Canadian separatist demonstrators supporting the FLQ. DGI contacts within revolutionary organizations like the FLQ had built an international terrorist ring. It was late March or early April of 1970. I was in Buffalo, New York. Uh, the FOCO there consisted of uh, five people. Bill Ayers and Naomi Jaffe were two of those people. Uh, Bill and uh, Naomi left and went to Canada, where at in Canada, I don't know, to meet with members of the Quebec Liberation Front with the objective of establishing closer ties with them and, and cooperating in actions, if possible, uh, on both sides of the border. And they also received it was either two or three thousand dollars from the Quebec Liberation Front that had been sent from Cuba for the weathermen. There was an attempt in 1965 by a group of blacks who had gone to Cuba under my auspices to blow up the Statue of Liberty. The Black Liberation Front, which had been formed in Cuba in 1964, was the prime mover behind this plot. The bombing was prevented, however, when the police recovered the explosives from their hiding place in the Bronx. Amongst those arrested was Michel Duclos, a member of the French-Canadian separatist organization, which provided the explosives to the Cuban-trained extremists. She pleaded guilty to illegally transporting dynamite. We know that uh, uh, the Weatherman underground organization uh, went to Cuba and utilized the same kinds of techniques that we utilized. Uh, these people uh, did engage in, in, in direct bombing and killing uh, in the United States. So I fear it. 
And yet, most of them haven't been heard from for a long, long time. That's right, but they're still out there. They're underground. And the question is, uh, over a long period of time, what does it take to activate them? In the 1950s, an obscure, unassuming photographer lived alone in Brooklyn, operating his business from a storefront. Rudolf Abel attracted little attention until it was revealed he headed a Soviet spy ring operating in America. He was caught and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Do you feel that you received a fair trial? I would refer that question to my attorney, Mr. Donovan. Our American system of trial by jury is the fairest system in the world. In the world of espionage, Abel was known as an illegal, a spy who lives under an assumed name and is controlled by Department S of the KGB. It is Department S that selects the agents who quietly blend into the societies of other nations and lead seemingly normal lives while secretly carrying out orders passed to them from Moscow. This is part of a television program about the black riots in America in 1968. It was produced by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The end credits are interesting in that the sound man on the film crew, Rudy Herman, was a KGB illegal. He was Colonel Rudolf Herman, whose cover story bears many similarities to that of Colonel Abel. Both men entered the US through Canada and both pursued careers in the film industry. Rudolf Herman went first to Toronto, where he lived quietly with his family in a small house on Sutherland Avenue. He was ordered to take a job with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 1969, Colonel Herman was ordered by Moscow to move from Toronto to New York and set up as a photographer while he organized his network of espionage in the United States. His appearance has been disguised and his voice electronically altered. Oh, yes. For the past 25 years, I was getting every weekend on two days a radio transmission. When Herman was finally caught by the FBI, Richard Kinsey was deputy chief of the Soviet desk at FBI headquarters in Washington. He had been sent on meetings, had he, or had been sent to yes. meet people in Canada, for one thing, had he not? Yes, he had. Do you know anything about why he was sent up to Canada? I'd prefer not to go into uh, to that. Colonel Herman traveled to Quebec City, where he went to Laval University and met with a Canadian economics professor named Hugh Hambleton. Hello, are you Professor Hambleton? Uh, yes, I am, yeah. Hugh Hambleton is a specialist in petroleum economics. He has been named by Colonel Herman as a long-time trusted source. Professor Hambleton met Herman many times and supplied him with information. This interview was filmed with hidden cameras. How did you meet Rudy Herman? I came with Laval, as I remember. 
I mean, I am pretty young. Just when did he come to the Oh, I don't know the guy. Uh, it's, it's, you know, your face is the guy. I'm not trying to. I'm, I'm being honest. Like, yeah. I don't remember exactly. I just know I knew him at the golf. I certainly didn't know him anywhere else. Well, Herman met Hamilton at least a dozen times in Canada, and in 1975 they met in Haiti, where Hamilton passed Herman information about the Chinese embassy. Well, he must have come there to see you. There was a top-secret FBI-RCMP operation targeting Professor Hamilton and Colonel Herman, codenamed Red Pepper. What was the reason for the meetings between Herman and Hamilton? Again, you're getting into what is still a sensitive area. Uh, I can say this, that uh, Colonel Herman was ordered to contact uh, Hamilton by his own admission, by his superiors in Moscow. But beyond that, I would not like to go. Professor Hamilton is not as naive as he might appear. During World War II, he worked for Free French Intelligence. After the war, he worked for Canadian Intelligence in Germany, but then, in the late 1940s, he met in Ottawa with Vladimir Borodin, a senior recruiter for Soviet intelligence. But, I mean, you met Borodino in 48, did you not? From 1956 to 1961, Hamilton had top-secret security clearance when he worked for NATO in Paris. Professor Hamilton has also made two trips to Cuba. He met with a leading Cuban intelligence officer, Ricardo Escartin, who has recently been expelled from the United States for espionage activities. In 1975, he made a trip to Moscow. How come you went to the Soviet Union? I didn't go. But you didn't go to the Soviet Union at all? What information Later, he confessed to making a 10 to 12 day trip to the Soviet Union in 1975, where, in his own words, he was under considerable pressure from the KGB. Subsequently, the RCMP raided Hamilton's Ottawa residence and seized a shortwave radio and code books. Professor Hamilton was just one of Colonel Herman's contacts. Herman has provided the FBI with significant leads on Soviet agents operating in North America. His espionage activities were of the utmost importance. My job would be without any importance. I would definitely not spend such a long time in the United States. And besides, uh, you know, during my years of service, I was several times promoted. Now Colonel Herman is somewhere in hiding in the United States, an illegal who came to the surface. Carlo Tuomi is another example of an illegal sent to America by Moscow. You were known as an illegal. What exactly is an illegal? Illegal is a foreign agent who enters the country with forged documents and establishes himself as a, as a citizen of that country. Um, little by little acquires all the documentation, the driver's license, uh, birth certificates, credit cards, and so, and so on. Finds a job, uh, gets all the credentials and all the background, uh, 
future references as a bona fide citizen of that country. For instance, in this case... That's what happened to you, right? That's right. And you got all this from Moscow when you were trained as a spy at a spy school in Moscow? That's right. That's right. That was a major part of my schooling. In case of North America, Canada, and the United States, what is much more dangerous are these so-called illegals who are smuggled into these countries. That is, people who, are, who come here under a new identity, and they, they live as citizens of these countries, and they would start operating, really, in, in case of war between the Soviet Union and the United States, for example, or in, in, in the time of major, of a very serious crisis, when, for example, the diplomatic relations would be broken. In case of war, I would, I would be, among other illegals, the only means by which the Soviet Union could get any military intelligence from the, uh, from the United States because all their diplomatic means, all their open means, would be cut off. And at the time you were with Czech intelligence, yeah. there were actually agents sent over here yes, that's right. who were to just sit and wait. That's right, yeah. Uh, very many. The Soviets used many routes to secretly place their illegals. The Soviet fishing fleets, which regularly stop at North American ports, have often provided the KGB with a secure means of landing their spies. Boris Stern was a photojournalist with the Soviet fishing fleet and recalls an incident he once witnessed. One time, we left a man in St. John's, Newfoundland. He had been kept in hiding on my boat. I thought, the other people on our boat thought, he was an illegal being dropped into Canada. You believe that this was a, a case of dropping a spy off in Canada? Yes. Within the KGB, there is another department which controls illegals. Department V conducts what are known within the KGB by the macabre description, wet affairs, assassinations, sabotage, and other violent acts. It is the department that takes care of the dirty work of the KGB. People Until he defected to the West, Arkady Shevchenko was a senior Soviet at the UN. That has been uh, uh, the department uh, with, uh, which uh, operates in the, in the secret, which is even unbelievable for the Soviet secret society. Have All you ever, known of, are have you ever known of any Department V people in North America? Yes, it was in New York, in the Soviet mission in New York, in the, in the middle of the 60s. And uh, uh, the, one of my friends, who happened also to be working with the KGB, uh, he they told me, look, you know, he he, this man looks so quiet, calm, and even respectable. Someone, if, if you look at him, you would never believe that he really, what he is really doing, and to what branch or to what department of the KGB he himself belongs. It is the most sinister thing in the world, which he is doing, this man was a member of Department V. He was trained in Moscow and sent to Canada, where explosives had already been hidden for his use. Well, then, fine, let's do an interview. I mean, okay, well, he refused to be interviewed. After months of work, the Norfolk Investigative Unit traced him to a small town where he now lives in hiding. 
the KGB and you were sent over to North America to engage in espionage acts and you decided for one reason or another not to go through with this. And, uh, however, Zabotka was sent to Edmonton in Western Canada where he spent four years working and acquiring all the credentials of a normal Canadian citizen. In 1965, the call came from Moscow. He was ordered to go to a Toronto suburb and observe a house and its occupants. The house was at the time inhabited by one of the most famous defectors of all, Igor Guzenko, who fled the Soviet embassy in 1945. His defection led to the uncovering of Soviet spy rings in North America and was a severe setback for Soviet espionage. Twenty years after it occurred, Department V of the KGB was still sending its agents looking for him. If he comes so close, and my life, of course, was very, very... And if I open door, incidentally, I never open door. Never open door in my house. Is it possible you went to the wrong house? <laughs> I don't know. Really don't know. So he could be my come in the wrong house or something, but I never myself opened. Sabotka had been activated by KGB agent Oleg Komenko, who at the time was working as a counselor at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa and was traveling with the Russian Moiseev Ballet on a North American tour. Strategically placed in Western Canada, Sabotka was ordered to plan, in the event of war, the destruction of the key refining and pumping stations that supply much of North America with its energy. Edmonton is also a center of top-secret cold-weather testing for Canadian and American forces, and Sabotka was ordered to find all he could about these facilities. He had other important missions, one of which was to act as a link between Moscow and a KGB sabotage network in North America. I would presume it was no accident that you were sent out to Edmonton with oil refineries and all that sort of thing. It, it was not an accident you were sent there? No, and I would presume that they, they had their plans on that I must really go. This house off Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. is an office of the Soviet military attaches. Some of these men have legitimate business there. However, most military attaches in reality are spies of the GRU, operating closely with the KGB. Working under the Ministry of Defense, the GRU specifically confines its activities to espionage in military matters. The first chief directorate of the KGB, however, has ultimate authority over the GRU espionage networks. During World War II, Carlo Tuomi was recruited into the Soviet military intelligence. He was born in Michigan of Finnish parents who left America and went to the Soviet Union while he was still a boy. His boyhood knowledge of America made him a natural candidate to become a Soviet spy sent back to the U.S. as an illegal. I was trained to collect military information about the United States armed forces with special emphasis on, on naval affairs and shipments of arms, uh, locations of uh, uh, 
docks and warehouses, specifically in the harbor of New York, where these arms were being stored and handled, and from where they were being shipped to foreign countries. In other words, you were a spy. That's true. I studied the, the United States in general, the geography, economy, government, armed forces. The woman who was uh, my English instructor had been born in Brooklyn, was a graduate of Columbia University, had an excellent command of uh, modern American English. What about uh, the American culture? I mean, how were you trained so that you would feel at home in America once you got there from Moscow? Well, uh, the basic way of getting me into touch with American reality and culture was by showing American movies. From movies, you can learn quite a bit about people behave, how they dress, how they talk. And so that's a very important way to train an agent who is to operate in that particular country. One of my, uh, one of the agents, he was not an instructor, but he was a more administrative uh, personnel. He took me to a storehouse which looked like a, really like an American clothing store where they picked the clothing the right size. Uh, well, the suits and overcoat had to be, uh, had to be adjusted. Were these American clothes that were shipped yeah, over to the Soviet were, Union? Yeah, they were American clothes. Uh, a lot of them were from Macy's. I entered the United States by train. I took a train from Montreal to Chicago. So Canada was used as a, as a stepping ground to enter the United States. Is Canada a usual way that the Soviets put spies in the United States? It is, uh, it is considered the easiest way. Soviet agents in the U.S. went to great lengths to create what is called his legend or his cover story. This legend, uh, for the later years where I was employed, especially in New York, in New York and in, um, in Milwaukee, the Soviet diplomatic intelligence agents had done a lot of groundwork. They had studied these different places. Uh, they, they took pictures from the outside. They had even some pictures taken inside of these, these places. In Moscow, Tuomi was shown these photographs of a lumber company in the Bronx where he was supposed to have worked and of a General Electric plant where he was also supposed to have been employed. They have been taken by uh, Soviet diplomatic personnel, in most cases working for the UN. Instructions for me originated in Moscow and were sent in coded form to Soviet intelligence agents who were posing as uh, UN diplomats. And they were uh, processed by these um, uh, diplomat spies and then sent to me um, 
by letter with a New York postmark. Did you ever get money from Soviet officials working with or for the UN? Definitely. They, they left the drops, uh, uh, magnetic containers like this. I usually, I usually received uh, $3,000 at a time. It was always in advance. Once I received 5400 which was in, which was in advance. This container. Uh, How was that container used? Well, the top of the container is magnetized, and then it is left at a predetermined place, uh, which is called a drop, under a railroad bridge, under an elevated, uh, um, inside a, uh, support of a bridge or something, and it was never lost. This was a very reliable gadget. And this was used all over New York City? Or yes. in places in New York City? Yes, I had four different drops. As this FBI photo shows, Tuomi met with his Soviet handler, Alexei Galkin. He then took a cover job at Tiffany's Jewelers in New York. Beneath this subway bridge in the Bronx was one of the drop points he had for messages. Another was the Hudson River train line. Another was under this railroad bridge in Queens at 69th Street. Another on this telephone pole in Yonkers. Once he was well established, Tuomi was ordered to take a job where he could carry out surveillance of the docks at the port of New York. Eventually, he was caught by the FBI and became a double agent. When you were caught by the FBI, did you try to signal your Soviet handlers at the UN or in Moscow that you had been caught? Not immediately, because I, I couldn't. It was in my mind, but I, I couldn't do it immediately. I did send the, a signal to the center, which is Soviet intelligence, uh, military intelligence headquarters in Moscow. I sent a signal uh, three months after I had been caught by the FBI. How did you send the signal? What means? I, I sent the signal by inserting it in a, a message, which I wrote under, under the control of the FBI. But I got away from the FBI agents for a few minutes uh, to write that message using the, uh, using the washroom. And was this a hidden writing technique that you used? Yes, I, uh, I had uh, an extra sheet of uh, uh, chemically treated paper, which was used for secret writing, and I used that in, in the washroom. There was an internal struggle inside them. I was torn apart. I was pro-Soviet. I believed in a Soviet system. And here I was working for the FBI, the enemy of my country. I, I just couldn't live with the idea of, uh, of uh, betraying the Soviet Union. Are you still pro-Soviet? Oh, definitely not. So what changed you? I don't understand how you've changed or why you've changed. That's a, that's a very long process, uh, something that doesn't happen overnight. This is the KGB Blue Book, where Tuomi is listed under his Soviet name. 
In it, he is named as an enemy of the fatherland. But even a spy caught and turned finds it difficult to be parted from his country. Because of the family. Your I, family that you had over in the Soviet Union? Yes, I, uh, I had a wife and I had three children. Otherwise, uh, coming to back to the United States, that's, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Have you ever heard from your former wife or your children? No, I haven't heard from them since 1963. The main purpose. Yuri Bizminov is a former KGB agent. Follows the statement of a very ancient Chinese philosopher, Sun Tzu, who was born 500 years. Uh, B.C., before Jesus Christ, who said something to the effect that fighting war on a battlefield is the most stupid and primitive way of fighting a war. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all, but to subvert anything of value in your enemy's country, be it moral, traditions, religion, respect to your authority and, and leaders, uh, cultural traditions, anything. Put white against black, old against young, uh, I don't know, wealthy against poor, and so on. Doesn't matter. As long as it disturbs society, as long as it cuts the moral fiber of a nation, it's good. And then you just take this country, when everything is subverted, when the country is disoriented and confused, when it is demoralized and then destabilized, then the crisis will come. Within the KGB is a department that specializes in planting false stories and forged documents to distort others' perception of reality. It is the department that deals in disinformation. Department A of the KGB set up and controls the disinformation department of Czech intelligence. Ladislav Bittman was deputy director of that department when he was with Czech intelligence. Uh, it can, this information can have a variety of forms. It's basically uh, an information deliberately misleading that is leaked through variety of channels to the opponent to deceive him, to, de to deceive the decision makers in the United States or Germany or Britain, or it can be a disinformation to deceive uh, the public opinion around the world or in a specific country. You got to be fairly good at this when you were with Czech intelligence, didn't you? Un unfortunately, I have to admit, yes. <laughs> One of Bittman's audacious schemes was to recover phony Nazi storage chests from a Czechoslovakian lake. The chests were filled with genuine Gestapo and SS documents supplied by the KGB and specifically chosen to rekindle animosity towards the Germans decades after World War II. And I was a member of the diving team. And when I talked with few people in the service about this, we came to the conclusion that this is a very good opportunity to play, play a dirty game against West Germany, that we would actually put something on the bottom of the lake and make it a big discovery. So we prepared uh, several German chests Supposedly, they were thrown into the lakes by Germans who were just fleeing Czechoslovak territory. The cases were brought from the bottom in front of television cameras. 
The documents were then displayed in an elaborate press conference aimed at weakening the solidarity of the NATO allies. It was quite successful in Italy, in France, in Austria. The press of these countries published them, and basically the tone was anti-German. Look what these German bastards did to us during the war. And, may, and there are so many who are still living in Germany. Who are the major targets of the disinformation campaign that you were waging? I understand there was two or three major yeah. targets. Well, uh, the target number one is, of course, the United States. Uh, it is called the enemy number one, or the main enemy. It's always used in that, that word. That is the official term for the United States. Then the second major target was the NATO alliance. And the goal was, the objective was, to work toward the dissolution of NATO with the hope that after some few years, the, 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 the tension within the organization would reach such a uh, stage, such a level, that NATO would stop existing. NATO was formed in post-war Europe as a political and military alliance against the Soviets. But its most effective opposition now comes not from Soviet armies, but from Soviet disinformation, which continually attempts to turn one NATO ally against another. Each one of these papers appears to be a leaked US government document, but they're all forgeries designed to sow dissension within NATO. This document made damaging remarks, supposedly from former President Carter, about both Greece and Turkey. This is a phony intelligence report on European left-wingers. This is a forged NATO document claiming to devise ways of getting support for the neutron bomb. A forged confidential State Department memo advocating economic espionage by America on her own allies. Many forgeries have been directed against Anwar Sadat, a confidential U.S. memo claiming his time is up, or false reports on former Vice President Mondale's remarks that neither Sadat nor Begin are viable leaders. There have been forgeries released to show American suppression of Islam, the religion of its oil suppliers. Yet perhaps the most successful Soviet disinformation attack was on the KGB's main competition, the CIA. It began with an agreement in the mid-60s between the East German and Czech intelligence services. The two disinformation departments, again under the supervision of the Soviets, decided to start a long-term operation against the CIA, making uh, life as hard as possible for CIA. That is to... to uh, label many American diplomats, politicians, cultural representatives abroad as CIA agents and paralyze their positions. Uh, specifically in 1966, the first major operation was to prepare a book which is, was and is called Who is Who in CIA. The book, Who's Who in CIA, was the beginning of the exposés that seriously undermined American intelligence capabilities for almost a decade. So powerful was the impact of this book that its imitators, like Philip Agee's Covered Action Information Bulletin, frequently refer to it as source material, as do other major news sources. 
It was used as a source in this ABC nightly news television broadcast in November 1980, claiming that the Reverend Jim Jones had a secret CIA associate before the Guyana massacre. This man, Richard Dwyer, is the focal point of many of the questions surrounding the possible CIA involvement at Jonestown. He's a career diplomat who served in sensitive posts throughout the Mideast. Two years ago, he was the deputy mission chief in Guyana. He is listed as a CIA agent in a publication that for years has specialized in such allegations. The CIA denies the accusation. But it was Ladislav Bittman who was one of the real authors of Who's Who in CIA. And although it was not published under his name, the book received exactly the attention he hoped it would. Shortly after coming to the United States, I found this book in many bookstores. I have it at home. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 for example, it was quoted by the uh, covert action bulletin or... Is this yeah. AG's group, the group? Yes, that's right. Philip it's one of, one of the major sources of information about CIA man. <laughs> so of course, that's ironic because that is a communist disinformation. Konstantin Hanf is a New York-based journalist for Polish-language newspapers in North America. When he decided to expose communist agents in the U.S., the long reach of the KGB influenced his life. Seventy-six, we started a wave of exposure of Soviet and Polish communist uh, intelligence network, especially here in New York. We exposed uh, agents mostly working around the United Nations. What agents were these? Who were they working for? For the KGB. Any other? A Polish communist intelligence service, which is actually nothing but uh, an arm of KGB, too. Shortly after his exposés of the KGB in New York, Hanf's stories were published in a heavily ethnic area in Winnipeg, several thousand miles to the west, by the weekly newspaper CHAS, the Polish Times. In July 1978, on a day the paper had not planned to publish, a bizarre edition of the weekly was put into circulation with articles and semi-nude photos designed to offend its conservative and older readership. It was done in a very clever way, you know, because uh, the look of it was exactly the same as we would have printed, you know. But uh, some things struck us right away, for example, right on the front pages that uh, uh, beautifully breasted women, you know, which we wouldn't have never put into a paper simply for the same, for different reasons, you know. But our readers are mostly middle-aged people who would never dream of doing kind of thing like that, you know. Inside the paper we have a picture of one of our correspondents in the uniform of a German Wehrmacht, you know, and the letter supposedly written by a Jewish writer referring to uh, our, uh, our journalist, uh, a contributor to the paper, Mr. Hunt, as a war criminal, Nazi war criminal. The funny part of it is that uh, when the war ended, he was about 18 years old, you know, and yet they said that he was high-ranking officer, you know, that he has killed so many Jews and this and that, you know, and there's another article portraying uh, Mr. Hanf as an agent of, uh, you take it, KGB, CIA, FBI, everything under the sun. It has become a classic case of Soviet bloc disinformation on a very personal level. The charges against Hanf were also made in a letter supposedly written by the Jewish Defense League of New York, 
and the letter was sent out to advertisers of the newspaper, informing them that Choss was harboring a Nazi war criminal. I am Polish from my belief and from my birth and uh, from my uh, persuasion, I would say, but my father was a German, so my uh, uh, engagement in the, in, the in the German army was not incidental, actually, because... How long were you in the German army and just what did you do? I was uh, a regular soldier. I was drafted in uh, March of 44. March 1944? Yes, when I was 17 and a half of age. And in February of, seven, of 45, I was uh, captured by the Soviets. The accusing letter was revealed to be a forgery when the real Jewish Defense League examined this and declared it had not been written on their stationery and also that they had never accused Mr. Hanf of any war crimes. What effect would this have had on your readership? What effect did this have on your advertisers? I mean, what was, what was it? Well, like? obviously, uh, I think the main aim was to stop just being published and have the same editorial policy as it was, you know, since Mr. Mroczkowski took over. And they wanted, I'm sure, to create panic on the board of directors so that we would fire him and get some woolly-headed uh, fellow, you know, which would be a little bit softer on communism. Yeah, there is a, <clears throat> a long-term plan and strategy how to, uh, how to frighten prominent exiles who are politically active or organizations that are very uh, uh, anti-Soviet or anti-communist. Uh, so, and I have to admit that this is a, rel a relatively an easy uh, thing to do. Why? Because m most exiles, most refugees or immigrants have some kind of relations with the mother country, with the people, with the relatives there. And they, uh, they can be even blackmailed. Because imagine that you have a mother there, and somebody comes and says, so if you don't cooperate, or if you, if you continue speaking against us, your mother will have a very tough life, my dear friend.
In the late 1950s, when Fidel Castro was taking his revolution out of the mountains toward the ultimate victory of Havana, the world watched what was believed to be a popular uprising of the people. There is not communism or Marxism in our ideas. Our political philosophy is representative democracy and social justice in a well-planned economy. But the revolution provided a new base for the KGB and the communist intelligence networks. Ladislav Bittman was a deputy director with so Czech intelligence. A few years after the revolution, the Czechs helped to build up the, the Cuban intelligence service. And then, I think in the early 1960s, the Soviets took over completely when Cuba was uh, really in, in the hands of the Soviet bloc, the Soviet Union. Here at the Cuban mission to the United Nations in New York City, where 98 Cuban nationals work, at least half are members of the DGI, the Cuban Intelligence Service. This man is Nestor Garcia. Until the summer of 1980, he was officially listed as the first secretary to the Cuban mission. But in reality, he was chief of station for Cuban intelligence in New York City. In Moscow, the direct responsibility for running Cuban intelligence is assigned to Department 11 of the KGB the same department that controls the Czechs, Poles, and other European communist intelligence agencies. Since the late 1960s, Soviet KGB officers living in Havana have directly run the operation of Cuban intelligence. As a result of two years' research, the Connections team has been able to ascertain these startling facts. Cuban intelligence was taken over by the Soviets in 1969. At that time, it became, and has remained, totally financed and controlled by the KGB. Now living in hiding, this man is the highest-ranking Cuban officer to defect to the United States. This is the first known television interview that a DGI officer has given. In uh, Moscow, I was trained in uh, recruiting of agents, in infiltrating uh, the CIA, in counterintelligence. Was all your training directed at the United States, all your training in Moscow directed at the United States? Even if the work dealt with uh, operations in Italy, France, England, Canada, it was ultimately directed against the United States. In the case of a uh, plan of sabotage against an American embassy, the physical layout of the plant had to be known. Was there any other installations than embassies that were looked at for sabotage? All the uh, big uh, American companies. Since the late 1960s, General Semenov of the KGB has controlled the DGI from Havana for the Soviets. General Semenov, the Soviet chief, would be the one who would give the order. So the Russians controlled Cuban intelligence, actually controlled? Totally and absolutely. The second most important base of Cuban intelligence in North America is the Cuban consulate in Montreal. 
From here and other Cuban diplomatic missions, the DGI conducts intelligence and espionage operations through a spy network designed to increase the KGB's penetration of North American life. You saw the files of these people in Havana, correct? Yo conozco muchos. Yes, I know many. Were they working, for instance, trying to get defense secrets from America? Definitivamente. Yes, definitely so. What else? ¿Qué otra cosa? Eh, información política. Political information, economic, economic information, leftist movements in the United States on the blacks. Información sobre las plantas de... Industrial plants of the United States, like uh, power plants and so on and so forth. Why would they be interested in power plants? This information is necessary to the Soviets. This former DGI officer was shown the official list of the 12 Cubans stationed in Washington at the Cuban interest section. How many on that list do you know as being in intelligence? Four. There are four on that list. Certainly. Certainly. Have you ever heard of a Mr. Ricardo Escartan? He's an intelligence officer. How about Mr. Juan Carbonell? Juan Carbonell is another officer of intelligence. Juan Carbonell is another intelligence officer who was in uh, Jamaica. Jeju Arbalea? También. Uh, also. Mr. Martinez? Sí, ese es otro oficial de inteligencia. Yes, this is another uh, officer of the uh, DGI. Six months after this interview, Ricardo Escartin was expelled from the U.S. for espionage activities. But the other DGI officers, Carbonell, Arbolea, and Martinez, are still operating in Washington. In the mid-1960s, the black ghettos of America erupted in flames and violence in an apparently spontaneous protest. The riots did not need instigation by outside elements, yet once the conditions were ripe, revolutionaries of the left moved in, funded and supported by the Cuban DGI. One such revolutionary was Philip Luce. What was the nature of your meeting with Fidel Castro? Uh, our nature, first of all, was we met a number of times. But our first meeting dealt with uh, what the group would do in Cuba. Uh, secondly, was uh, what we could do in the United States once we returned. And third of all, uh, we received uh, uh, over $20,000 to bring back to the United States. Uh, the next year, we were engaged in uh, tremendous uh, 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 riots in New York City, uh, which then spread to uh, Cleveland, uh, to Los Angeles, to other areas. Agitation at Junction was vital, uh, not only to our cause, but to the cause of Cubans. We trained people on the use of weapons. We also trained people on how to stand on top of their tenement buildings and throw down garbage cans filled with bricks. We also taught them how to make Molotov cocktails. As a matter of fact, the Cubans <clears throat> at that time said to us, your revolution is your own revolution. But while we were in Cuba, they gave us money to bring back to the United States to be utilized uh, in terrorist activities. They also invited us to the embassy, wherein they gave us money to send young Americans to Cuba who were later trained in terrorist activities. We went to the Cuban embassy uh, on a number of occasions uh, to get funding.
In the 1960s, Bernadine Dorn was one of the leaders of the violent radical group known as the Weathermen. On December 3, 1980, in Chicago, Bernadine Dorn surrendered after 10 years in hiding. With her was another weatherman, Bill Ayers, with whom she had been living. They held a press conference and stated their continued commitment to radical change. Resistance by every means necessary is happening and will continue to happen within the United States as well as around the world. And I remain committed to the struggle ahead. The man with Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, was one of the key members of the Weathermen during the 1960s. A man who knew Ayers well during those years was Larry Grathwall, a former member of the Weather Underground, which had developed close ties with the Cubans. Well, when, when the Cubans viewed the, the revolutionary struggle in the United States, they recognized the fact that the, that the left as it existed in 69 and 70 was not capable of, of overthrowing the government by itself. Consequently, they, they had hoped that the, that the group itself would be able to, to attack the system from within and provide assistance to the international movement, the international communist revolution. As a weatherman, if I became cut off from the main body of the, of the organization, the Weather Underground organization, I could make contact or reestablish contact by going to the Cuban embassy in Mexico or Canada and asking to, as an example, I wanted to get in touch with Bernadine Delgado. That was the code word, Delgado. And I would tell them that I'm Larry Delgado and I can be reached at such and such a phone number or at such and such an address. And the Cubans would make the connection and put me back in contact with the How do you weatherman. know this? I don't how do you know. How do you know this information? Oh, Bill Ayers gave me those instructions in, it was either February or March of 1970 in Detroit. The Cuban DGI is organized into seven departments and subdivided into geographic sections, the largest one being the United States section. It controls North American operations, including the UN, diplomatic posts, and radical groups. During the 1970s, hundreds of young Americans circumvented U.S. travel regulations to go to Cuba to harvest sugarcane and experience the Cuban Revolution firsthand. As a cover for the recruitment of the weathermen, the DGI organized the Venceremos Brigades. The organizers, tour guides, and hosts were officers of the DGI who used the occasion to train young American radicals. Cuban intelligence was well prepared for the Venceremos brigades when they arrived. Every time that uh, a Venceremos brigade contingent arrived in Cuba, all the uh, operational of the um, DGI had to drop what they were doing and go to work on the Venceremos brigade. We had to investigate, collect background to see who could be recruited what information could be obtained. Do you know of young Americans who were recruited in the brigade to work for the Cuban intelligence who came back to America and were secretly working for the Cubans? Yes, and they are still working. Still working for yeah. the Cubans in America? Yes, definitely. 
the brigade was established with the sole purpose of providing a cover for the weathermen to get their people to Cuba for training. And that that's why it existed. As a matter of fact, when our people came back off the 1st Venceramus Brigade, and, and I think it was February of 1970, the criticism that the uh, Cubans had made about the Venceramus Brigade indicated that the majority of people being sent there they felt were useless. They really weren't helping them harvest sugarcane. But that it was justified in the sense that here was a means to train and politicize weathermen contacts and weathermen. Cuba somehow had the ability to uh, bring out young people at that time. Uh, the feeling of, of communism with a uh, mambo beat or uh, somehow that uh, what was happening in Cuba was totally different than what was happening anyplace else in the world. This was the main reason of the interest showed by the Russians in trying to control the DGI, because the Cubans could work far more easily than the Soviets. Weren't the weather people aware that they were being used by the Soviets in some no. way? No. They, they view the Cubans as being the vanguard of the international communist revolution. Now, the vanguard essentially means that the Cubans are at the very tip of the spear. They're the leadership. Um, the Russians are being used by the Cubans. Now, this is the weatherman's rationalization of this, this interaction between the Soviets and the Cubans. The Cubans said, you've got to become active. You've got to start doing things. And planning a national action to protest the beginning of the Chicago 8 trial and to commemorate the, the, the riots during the, the Democratic National Convention of 68 uh, and to protest the war in Vietnam is not action. Action requires that you confront the system violently. So when the weathermen got back from Cuba, they changed the national action to the days of rage. The days of rage in October 1969 was an attack on the city of Chicago and its police department. For four days, anti-war protesters, urged on by agitators of the weathermen, rioted in the streets, engaging in violent confrontations and pitched battles with the police. Quebec during the 1960s was rocked by terrorist bombings and confrontations between the police and French-Canadian separatist demonstrators supporting the FLQ. DGI contacts within revolutionary organizations like the FLQ had built an international terrorist ring. It was late March or early April of 1970. I was in Buffalo, New York. Uh, the FOCO there consisted of uh, five people. Bill Ayers and Naomi Jaffe were two of those people. Uh, Bill and uh, Naomi left and went to Canada, where at in Canada, I don't know, to meet with members of the Quebec Liberation Front with the objective of establishing closer ties with them and, and cooperating in actions, if possible, uh, on both sides of the border. And they also received it was either two or three thousand dollars from the Quebec Liberation Front that had been sent from Cuba for the weathermen. There was an attempt in 1965 by a group of 
blacks who had gone to Cuba under my auspices to blow up the Statue of Liberty. The Black Liberation Front, which had been formed in Cuba in 1964, was the prime mover behind this plot. The bombing was prevented, however, when the police recovered the explosives from their hiding place in the Bronx. Amongst those arrested was Michel Duclos, a member of the French-Canadian separatist organization, which provided the explosives to the Cuban-trained extremists. She pleaded guilty to illegally transporting dynamite. We know that uh, uh, the Weatherman underground organization uh, went to Cuba and utilized the same kinds of techniques that we utilized. Uh, these people uh, did engage in, in, in direct bombing and killing uh, in the United States. So I fear it. And yet, most of them haven't been heard from for a long, long time. That's right, but they're still out there. They're underground. And the question is, uh, over a long period of time, what does it take to activate them? In the 1950s, an obscure, unassuming photographer lived alone in Brooklyn, operating his business from a storefront. Rudolf Abel attracted little attention until it was revealed he headed a Soviet spy ring operating in America. He was caught and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Do you feel that you received a fair trial? I would refer that question to my attorney, Mr. Donnelly. Our American system of trial by jury is the fairest system in the world. In the world of espionage, Abel was known as an illegal, a spy who lives under an assumed name and is controlled by Department S of the KGB. It is Department S that selects the agents who quietly blend into the societies of other nations and lead seemingly normal lives while secretly carrying out orders passed to them from Moscow. This is part of a television program about the black riots in America in 1968. It was produced by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The end credits are interesting in that the sound man on the film crew, Rudy Herman, was a KGB illegal. He was Colonel Rudolf Herman, whose cover story bears many similarities to that of Colonel Abel. Both men entered the US through Canada and both pursued careers in the film industry. Rudolf Herman went first to Toronto, where he lived quietly with his family in a small house on Sutherland Avenue. He was ordered to take a job with the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 1969, Colonel Herman was ordered by Moscow to move from Toronto to New York and set up as a photographer while he organized his network of espionage in the United States. His appearance has been disguised and his voice electronically altered. Oh, yes. For the past 25 years, I was getting every weekend on two days a radio transmission. When Herman was finally caught by the FBI, 
Richard Kinsey was deputy chief of the Soviet desk at FBI headquarters in Washington. He had been sent on meetings, had he, or had been sent to yes. meet people in Canada for one thing, had he not? Yes, he had. Do you know anything about why he was sent up to Canada? I'd prefer not to go into uh, to that. Colonel Herman traveled to Quebec City where he went to Laval University and met with a Canadian economics professor named Hugh Hambleton. Hello, are you Professor Hambleton? Uh, yes, I am, yeah. Hugh Hambleton is a specialist in petroleum economics. He has been named by Colonel Herman as a long-time trusted source. Professor Hambleton met Herman many times and supplied him with information. This interview was filmed with hidden cameras. How did you meet Rudy Herman? I came at Laval, that's as I remember. I mean, I, I'm pretty honest, because I just... When did he come to Laval? Well, I don't know the guy, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, your face is the guy. I'm trying to, I'm, I'm being honest, I, yeah. I don't remember exactly. I just know I knew him at Laval. I certainly didn't know him anywhere else. Well, Herman met Hambleton at least a dozen times in Canada, and in 1975, they met in Haiti, where Hambleton passed Herman information about the Chinese embassy. Well, he must have come there to see you. There was a top-secret FBI-RCMP operation targeting Professor Hambleton and Colonel Herman, codenamed Red Pepper. What was the reason for the meetings between Herman and Hambleton? Again, you're getting into what is still a sensitive area. Uh, I can say this, that uh, Colonel Herman was ordered to contact uh, Hamilton by his own admission, by his superiors in Moscow. But beyond that, I would not like to go. Professor Hamilton is not as naive as he might appear. During World War II, he worked for Free French Intelligence. After the war, he worked for Canadian Intelligence in Germany, but then, in the late 1940s, he met in Ottawa with Vladimir Borodin, a senior recruiter for Soviet intelligence. You met Borodino in 48, did you not? From 1956 to 1961, Hambleton had top-secret security clearance when he worked for NATO in Paris. Professor Hambleton has also made two trips to Cuba. He met with a leading Cuban intelligence officer, Ricardo Escartin, who has recently been expelled from the United States for espionage activities. In 1975, he made a trip to Moscow. How come you went to the Soviet Union? Now? I didn't go. But you didn't go to the Soviet Union at all? What information? Later, he confessed to making a 10 to 12 day trip to the Soviet Union in 1975, where, in his own words, he was under considerable pressure from the KGB. Subsequently, the RCMP raided Hambleton's Ottawa residence and seized a shortwave radio and code books. Professor Hambleton was just one of Colonel Herman's contacts. Herman has provided the FBI with significant leads on Soviet agents operating in North America. His espionage activities were of the utmost importance. My job would be without any importance. I would definitely not spend such a long time in the United States. And besides, uh, you know, during my years of service, I was several times promoted. Now Colonel Herman is somewhere in hiding in the United States, an illegal who came to the surface.
Carlo Tuomi is another example of an illegal sent to America by Moscow. You were known as an illegal. What exactly is an illegal? Illegal is a foreign agent who enters the country with forged documents and establishes himself as a, as a citizen of that country. Um, little by little acquires all the documentation, the driver's license, uh, birth certificates, credit cards, and so, and so on. Finds a job, uh, gets all the credentials and all the background, uh, future references as a bona fide citizen of that country. For instance, in this case... That's what happened to you, right? That's right. And you got all this from Moscow when you were trained as a spy at a spy school in Moscow? That's right. That's right. That was a major part of my schooling. In case of North America, Canada, and the United States, what is much more dangerous are these so-called illegals who are smuggled into these countries. That is, people who, are, who come here under a new identity, and they, they live as citizens of these countries, and they would start operating really in, in case of war between the Soviet Union and the United States, for example, or in, in, in the time of major, of a very serious crisis when, for example, the diplomatic relations would be broken. In case of war, I would, I would be among other illegals. The only means by which the Soviet Union could get any military intelligence from the, uh, from the United States because all their diplomatic means, all their open means would be cut off. And at the time you were with Czech intelligence, yeah. there were actually agents sent over here yes, that's right. who were to just sit and wait. That's right, yeah. Uh, very many. The Soviets used many routes to secretly place their illegals. The Soviet fishing fleets, which regularly stop at North American ports, have often provided the KGB with a secure means of landing their spies. Boris Stern was a photojournalist with the Soviet fishing fleet and recalls an incident he once witnessed. One time, we left a man in St. John's, Newfoundland. He had been kept in hiding on my boat. I thought, the other people on our boat thought, he was an illegal being dropped into Canada. You believe that this was a, a case of dropping a spy off in Canada? Yes. Within the KGB, there is another department which controls illegals. Department V conducts what are known within the KGB by the macabre description, wet affairs, assassinations, sabotage, and other violent acts. It is the department that takes care of the dirty work of the KGB. Until he defected to the West, Arkady Shevchenko was a senior Soviet at the UN. That has been uh, uh, the department uh, with, uh, which uh, operates in the, in the secret, which is even unbelievable for the Soviet secret society. Have All you ever, known of, are have you ever known of any Department V people in North America? Yes, it was in New York, in the Soviet mission in New York in the, in the middle of the 60s. And uh, uh, 
the one of my friends who happened also to be working with the KGB, uh, he they told me, look, you know, he look, he, this man looks so quiet, calm, and even respectable as someone. If, if you look at him, you would never believe that he really, what he is really doing, and to what branch or to what department of the KGB he himself belongs. That is the most sinister thing in the world, which he is doing. This man was a member of Department V. He was trained in Moscow and sent to Canada, where explosives had already been hidden for his use. Well, then fine, let's do an interview. I mean, okay, well, he refused to be interviewed. After months of work, the Norfolk Investigative Unit traced him to a small town where he now lives in hiding. The KGB, and you were sent over to North America to engage in espionage acts, and you decided for one reason or another not to go through with this. And uh, however, Zabotka was sent to Edmonton in Western Canada, where he spent four years working and acquiring all the credentials of a normal Canadian citizen. In 1965, the call came from Moscow. He was ordered to go to a Toronto suburb and observe a house and its occupants. The house was at the time inhabited by one of the most famous defectors of all, Igor Guzenko, who fled the Soviet embassy in 1945. His defection led to the uncovering of Soviet spy rings in North America and was a severe setback for Soviet espionage. 20 years after it occurred, Department V of the KGB was still sending its agents looking for him. If he comes so close, my life, of course, was very, very... And if I open door, Incidentally, I never opened door. Never opened door in my house. Is it possible you went to the wrong house? <laughs> I don't know. Really don't know. So he could be my coming in the wrong house or something, but I never myself opened door. Where we think Sabotka had been activated by KGB agent Oleg Komenko, who at the time was working as a counselor at the Soviet embassy in Ottawa and was traveling with the Russian Moiseev Ballet on a North American tour. Strategically placed in Western Canada, Sabotka was ordered to plan, in the event of war, the destruction of the key refining and pumping stations that supply much of North America with its energy. Edmonton is also a center of top-secret cold weather testing for Canadian and American forces, and Sabotka was ordered to find all he could about these facilities. He had other important missions, one of which was to act as a link between Moscow and a KGB sabotage network in North America. I presume it was no accident that you were sent out to Edmonton with oil refineries and all that sort of thing. No, it wasn't. It was not an accident you were sent there? No, it And I would presume that they... They had their plans on that I must really go. This house off Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C. is an office of the Soviet military attaches. Some of these men have legitimate business there. However, most military attaches in reality are spies of the GRU, operating closely with the KGB. Working under the Ministry of Defense, the GRU specifically confines its activities to espionage in military matters. 
The first chief directorate of the KGB, however, has ultimate authority over the GRU espionage networks. During World War II, Carlo Tuomi was recruited into the Soviet military intelligence. He was born in Michigan of Finnish parents who left America and went to the Soviet Union while he was still a boy. His boyhood knowledge of America made him a natural candidate to become a Soviet spy sent back to the U.S. as an illegal. I was trained to collect military information about the United States armed forces with special emphasis on, on naval affairs and shipments of arms. Uh, locations of uh, uh, docks and warehouses, specifically in the harbor of New York, where these arms were being stored and handled, and from where they were being shipped to foreign countries. In other words, you were a spy. That's true. I studied the, the United States in general, the, geography, economy, government, armed forces. The woman who was uh, my English instructor had been born in Brooklyn, was a graduate of Columbia University, had an excellent command of uh, modern American English. What about uh, the American culture? I mean, how were you trained so that you would feel at home in America once you got there from Moscow? Well, uh, the basic way of getting me into touch with American reality and culture was by showing American movies. From movies, you can learn quite a bit how people behave, how they dress, how they talk. And so that's a very important way to train an agent who is to operate in that particular country. One of my, uh, one of the agents, he was not an instructor, but he was a more administrative uh, personnel. He took me to a storehouse, which looked like a, really like an American clothing store, where they picked the clothing the right size. Uh, well, the, Suits and overcoat had to be uh, had to be adjusted. Were these American clothes that were shipped yeah, over to the were, Soviet Union? They were American clothes. Uh, a lot of them were from Macy's. I entered the United States by train. I took a train from Montreal to Chicago. So Canada was used as a as a stepping ground to enter the United States. Is Canada a usual way that the Soviets put spies in the United States? It is, uh, it is considered the easiest way. Soviet agents in the U.S. went to great lengths to create what is called his legend or his cover story. This legend uh, for the later years where I was employed, especially in New York, in New York and in, um, in Milwaukee, the Soviet diplomatic intelligence agents had done a lot of groundwork. They had studied these different places. Uh, they, they took 
picture from the outside. They had even some pictures taken inside of these, these places. In Moscow, Tuomi was shown these photographs of a lumber company in the Bronx where he was supposed to have worked and of a General Electric plant where he was also supposed to have been employed. They have been taken by uh, Soviet diplomatic personnel, in most cases working for the UN. Instructions for me originated in Moscow and were sent in coded form to Soviet intelligence agents who were posing as uh, UN diplomats. And they were uh, processed by these um, uh, diplomat spies and then sent to me um, uh, by letter with a New York postmark. Did you ever get money from Soviet officials working with or for the UN? Definitely. They, they left the drops, uh, uh, magnetic containers like this. I usually, I usually received uh, $3,000 at a time. It was always in advance. Once I received $5,400, which, which was in advance, this container how was that container used? Well, the top of the container is magnetized, and then it is left at a predetermined place, which is called a drop, under a railroad bridge, under an elevated, um, um, inside a, a support of a bridge or something, and it was never lost. This was a very reliable gadget. And this was used all over New York City? Or yes. in places in New York City? Yes, I had four different drops. As this FBI photo shows, Tuomi met with his Soviet handler, Alexei Galkin. He then took a cover job at Tiffany's Jewelers in New York. Beneath this subway bridge in the Bronx was one of the drop points he had for messages. Another was the Hudson River train line. Another was under this railroad bridge in Queens at 69th Street. Another on this telephone pole in Yonkers. Once he was well established, Tuomi was ordered to take a job where he could carry out surveillance of the docks at the port of New York. Eventually, he was caught by the FBI and became a double agent. When you were caught by the FBI, did you try to signal your Soviet handlers at the UN or in Moscow that you had been caught? Not immediately, because I, I couldn't. It was in my mind, but I, I couldn't do it immediately. I did send the, a signal to the center, which is Soviet intelligence, uh, military intelligence headquarters in Moscow. I sent a signal uh, three months after I had been caught by the FBI. How did you send the signal? What means? I, I sent the signal by inserting it in a, a message which I wrote under, under the control of the FBI. But I got away from the FBI agents for a few minutes uh, to write that message using the, uh, using the washroom. And was this a hidden writing technique that you used? Yes, I, uh, I had uh, an extra sheet of uh, 
chemically treated paper, which was used for secret writing, and I used that in, in the washroom. There was an internal struggle inside of me. I was torn apart. I was pro-Soviet. I believed in a Soviet system. And here I was working for the FBI, the enemy of my country. I, I just couldn't live with the idea of, uh, of uh, betraying the Soviet Union. Are you still pro-Soviet? Oh, definitely not. So what changed you? I don't understand how you've changed, or why you've changed. That's a, that's a very long process, uh, something that doesn't happen overnight. This is the KGB Blue Book, where Tuomi is listed under his Soviet name. In it, he is named as an enemy of the fatherland. But even a spy caught and turned finds it difficult to be parted from his country. Because of the family. Your I, family that you had over in the Soviet yes, Union? Yes, I, uh, I had a wife and I had three children. Otherwise, uh, coming to, back to the United States, that's, that's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Have you ever heard from your former wife or your children? No, I haven't heard from them since 1963. Yuri Bizminov is a former KGB agent. Follows the statement of a very ancient Chinese philosopher, Sun Tzu, who was born 500 years uh, BC, before Jesus Christ, who said something to the effect that fighting war on a battlefield is the most stupid and primitive way of fighting a war. The highest art of warfare is not to fight at all, but to subvert anything of value in your enemy's country be it moral traditions, religion, respect to your authority and, and leaders, uh, cultural traditions, anything. Put white against black, old against young, uh, I don't know, wealthy against poor, and so on. Doesn't matter. As long as it disturbs society, as long as it cuts the moral fiber of a nation, it's good. And then you just take this country. When everything is subverted, when the country is disoriented and confused, when it is demoralized and then destabilized, then the crisis will come. Within the KGB is a department that specializes in planting false stories and forged documents to distort others' perception of reality. It is the department that deals in disinformation. Department A of the KGB set up and controls the disinformation department of Czech intelligence, Ladislav Bittman was deputy director of that department when he was with Czech intelligence. Uh, it can, this information can have a variety of forms. It's basically uh, an information deliberately misleading that is leaked through a variety of channels to the opponent to deceive him. To, de to deceive the decision makers in the United States or Germany or Britain, or it can be a disinformation to deceive uh, the public opinion around the world or in a specific country. You got to be fairly good at this when you were with Czech intelligence, didn't you? Un unfortunately, I have to admit, yes. <laughs>
One of Dittman's audacious schemes was to recover phony Nazi storage chests from a Czechoslovakian lake. The chests were filled with genuine Gestapo and SS documents supplied by the KGB and specifically chosen to rekindle animosity towards the Germans decades after World War II. And I was a member of the diving team. And when I talked with few people in the service about this, we came to the conclusion that this is a very good opportunity to play, play a dirty game against West Germany, that we would actually put something on the bottom of the lakes and make it a big discovery. So we prepared uh, several German chests. Supposedly, they were thrown into the lakes by Germans who were just fleeing Czechoslovak territory. The cases were brought from the bottom in front of television cameras. The documents were then displayed in an elaborate press conference aimed at weakening the solidarity of the NATO allies. It was quite successful in Italy, in France, in Austria. The press of these countries published them and basically the tone was anti-German. Look what these German bastards did to us during the war. And, may, and there are so many who are still living in Germany. Who are the major targets of the disinformation campaign that you were waging? I understand there was two or three major yeah. targets. Well, uh, the target number one is, of course, the United States. Uh, it is called the enemy number one, or the main enemy. It's always used in that, that word. That is the official term for the United States. Then the second major target was the NATO alliance. And the goal was, the objective was, to work toward the dissolution of NATO with the hope that after some few years, the, 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 the tension within the organization would reach such a uh, stage, such a level, that NATO would stop existing. NATO was formed in post-war Europe as a political and military alliance against the Soviets. But its most effective opposition now comes not from Soviet armies, but from Soviet disinformation, which continually attempts to turn one NATO ally against another. Each one of these papers appears to be a leaked US government document, but they're all forgeries designed to sow dissension within NATO. This document made damaging remarks, supposedly from former President Carter, about both Greece and Turkey. This is a phony intelligence report on European left-wingers. This is a forged NATO document claiming to devise ways of getting support for the neutron bomb. A forged confidential State Department memo advocating economic espionage by America on her own allies. Many forgeries have been directed against Anwar Sadat, a confidential U.S. memo claiming his time is up, or false reports on former Vice President Mondale's remarks that neither Sadat nor Begin are viable leaders. There have been forgeries released to show American suppression of Islam, the religion of its oil suppliers. Yet perhaps the most successful Soviet disinformation attack was on the KGB's main competition, the CIA. It began with an agreement in the mid-60s between the East German and Czech intelligence services. The two disinformation departments, again under the supervision of the Soviets, 
decided to start a long-term operation against the CIA, making uh, life as hard as possible for CIA. That is to, to uh, label many American diplomats, politicians, cultural representatives abroad as CIA agents and paralyze their positions. Uh, specifically in 1966, the first major operation was to prepare a book which is, was and is called Who is Who in CIA. The book, Who's Who in CIA, was the beginning of the exposés that seriously undermined American intelligence capabilities for almost a decade. So powerful was the impact of this book that its imitators, like Philip Agee's Covert Action Information Bulletin, frequently refer to it as source material, as do other major news sources. It was used as a source in this ABC nightly news television broadcast in November 1980, claiming that the Reverend Jim Jones had a secret CIA associate before the Guyana massacre. This man, Richard Dwyer, is the focal point of many of the questions surrounding the possible CIA involvement at Jonestown. He's a career diplomat who served in sensitive posts throughout the Mideast. Two years ago, he was the deputy mission chief in Guyana. He is listed as a CIA agent in a publication that for years has specialized in such allegations. The CIA denies the accusation. But it was Ladislav Bittman who was one of the real authors of Who's Who in CIA. And although it was not published under his name, the book received exactly the attention he hoped it would. Shortly after coming to the United States, I found this book in many bookstores. I have it at home. <laughs> uh, and it, 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 for example, it was quoted by the uh, covert action bulletin or is this AG's group, the group? Yes, that's right. Philip it's one of, one of the major sources of information about CIA men. <laughs> so of course, that's ironic because that is a communist disinformation. Konstantin Hanf is a New York-based journalist for Polish-language newspapers in North America. When he decided to expose communist agents in the U.S., the long reach of the KGB influenced his life. 76, we started a wave of exposure of Soviet and Polish communist uh, intelligence network, especially here in New York. We exposed uh, agents mostly working around the United Nations. What agents were these? Who were they working for? For the KGB. Any other? A Polish communist intelligence service, which is actually nothing but uh, an arm of KGB too. Shortly after his exposés of the KGB in New York, Hanf's stories were published in a heavily ethnic area in Winnipeg, several thousand miles to the west, by the weekly newspaper CHAS, the Polish Times. In July 1978, on a day the paper had not planned to publish, a bizarre edition of the weekly was put into circulation with articles and semi-nude photos designed to offend its conservative and older readership. It was done in a very clever way, you know, because uh, the look of it was exactly the same as we would have printed, you know. But uh, some things struck us right away, for example, right on the front pages that uh, uh, beautifully breasted women, you know, which we wouldn't have never put into a paper simply for the same, for different reasons, you know. But 
our readers are mostly middle-aged people. You would never dream of doing kind of thing like that, you know. Inside the paper, we have a picture of one of our correspondents in the uniform of a German Wehrmacht, you know, and the letter supposedly written by a Jewish writer referring to uh, our, uh, our journalist, uh, uh, a contributor to the paper, Mr. Hunt, as a war criminal, Nazi war criminal. The funny part of it is that uh, when the war ended, he was about 18 years old, you know, and yet they said that he was high-ranking officer, you know, that he has killed so many Jews and this and that, you know, and there's another article portraying uh, Mr. Hanf as an agent of, uh, you take it, KGB, CIA, FBI, everything under the sun. It has become a classic case of Soviet bloc disinformation on a very personal level. The charges against Hanf were also made in a letter supposedly written by the Jewish Defense League of New York, and the letter was sent out to advertisers of the newspaper, informing them that Chas was harboring a Nazi war criminal. I am Polish from my belief and from my birth and uh, from my uh, persuasion, I would say, but my father was a German, so my... Uh, uh, engagement in the in the American in the German army was not incidental actually because how long were you in the German army and just what did you do I was uh, a regular soldier I was drafted in uh, March of 44 March 1944 yes when I was 17 and a half of age and in February of seven of 45 I was uh, captured by the Soviets the accusing letter was revealed to be a forgery when the real Jewish Defense League examined this and declared it had not been written on their stationery and also that they had never accused Mr. Hanf of any war crimes. What effect would this have had on your readership? What effect did this have on your advertisers? I mean, what was, what was it? Well, like? obviously, uh, I think the main aim was to stop chance being published and have the same editorial policy as it was, you know, since Mr. Mroczkowski took over. And they wanted, I'm sure, to create panic on the board of directors so that we would fire him and get some woolly-headed uh, fellow, you know, which would be a little bit softer on communism. Yeah, there is a, <clears throat> a long-term plan and strategy how to, uh, how to frighten prominent exiles who are politically active or organizations that are very uh, uh, anti-Soviet or anti-communist. Uh, so, and I have to admit that this is a, rel a relatively an easy uh, thing to do. Why? Because m most exiles, most refugees or immigrants have some kind of relations with the mother country, with the people, with the relatives there, and they, uh, they can be even blackmailed, because imagine that you have a mother there, and somebody comes and says, so if you don't cooperate, or if you, if you continue speaking against us, your mother will have a very tough life, my dear friend. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once again.
true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, they will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently for You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My poor little children. Yes, we can. One day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. It ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you beat. That's how winning is done. Welcome to Public Access America. Yes, we can. Now on Instagram and SoundCloud. He wanted to run out of that tunnel for my dad. On Twitter. Apple Podcasts for Stitcher Smart Radio. Potable and more. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 